Hello and welcome to the New Testament Setting Podcast. My name is Dr. Benjamin Browning and as we get started I would encourage you to like, share, and leave a review on this podcast. It helps the channel out. Also, you can purchase my book called Facing the Mob, Rome, the Crowd, and the New Testament. It really helps us out. Welcome to the New Testament Setting Podcast. We are going to continue our interview with uh, Dr. Charles Ray III. And uh, I encourage you, if you did not see the last episode, like listen to the last episode, go back, listen to that. And then for this episode, that'll really kind of set the foundation. But on this episode, we're going to talk about the pastoral epistles and specifically um, the use of the Old Testament um, in those epistles. Now, real quick, before I just start using this language throughout the entire uh, episode, some of you don't know what that means. So when I talk about the pastoral epistles, I'm talking about 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Um, so just as we get started here, um, can you just give me a brief explanation of maybe some of the challenges? I don't think this is one of my questions here, but if you could just give a brief explanation, because guys, the pastoral epistles can be very controversial. So just consider this a bonus because this is not related to New Testament use of the Old Testament. But if you could just take a few minutes uh, to tell us what are some of the difficulties related to the pastoral epistles? Because some people would just say, oh, they're not even, you know, they weren't even written by Paul. Like if you could just kind of give us some of that. Yeah, I think that's one of the main things. So if you read like uh, introductions to the New Testament, the one I used in my undergrad would basically say that the New Testament, uh, the, the pastoral epistles weren't written by Paul. So they would claim that they're either uh, pseudonymous written under a false name, maybe right, or maybe by one of Paul's disciples. So um, you may not encounter this as much sort of in evangelical circles, but in broader New Testament scholarship, the consensus would be that Paul didn't write them. Um, and that shifts over time, obviously, right? But that, that's, a, that's an opinion you'll see out there very widely. Um, there's lots of different arguments made for that. A lot of the arguments are related to uh, where do they fit in Paul's life, right? So where do they fit in, in Paul's Paul's life and ministry? A lot of them have to do with the grammar and style of the pastoral epistles. Some will argue that they don't read like the rest of the Paul or rest of Paul's letters. I mean, they, one of the problems there for us as as Christians is, I mean, they certainly claim to be written by Paul. Um, I mean, if you read them, they start very much like Paul's others' letters. They're addressed to Timothy and to Titus. Um, and so I think we, we run into some problems there as, as evangelical scholars, right, if we hold that they're not written by Paul. And so I think there's lots of good sort of counter arguments to those arguments. I think that really a lot of the, the arguments related to grammar or style are just much more difficult to make than scholars would, would, would like to think they are. I mean, I will say if you read through the book of First Timothy, it has lots of what we call hopox legomena, right, which are words that are only used one time in the New Testament. So it is a tough book if you're translating it from the Greek. There's lots of words that don't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. So there's interesting differences about the pastorals, but I do think we don't really have any good reason not to believe that they're written by Paul. 
And so I think that we need to to give more focused attention to them. I, I think even really they deal a lot with church order and church structure in a way that's actually pretty important for us to consider as Christians today. Yeah, and I don't want to get too sidetracked on it because I do feel like this could be its own episode. Um, sure. But uh, yeah, the arguments, one thing for those who aren't familiar with New Testament scholarship, and, and I would say probably scholarship more broadly, there are certain ideas that become so ingrained that people just say it as if everyone agrees with it. Mm -hmm. And they just, they cease to be challenged. So that has been for a lot of scholarship that has happened with first, second Timothy and Titus. Uh, Many, many decades ago, a scholar said, look, these aren't original. And, um, and now pretty much everyone has accepted that as gospel. And that's pretty much, uh, that's, that's considered scholarly orthodoxy. That that's what's generally accepted. So where someone like, you know, like myself and like Dr. Ray and many other conservative scholars, when we would say, no, it, it probably was written by Paul. Like the answers aren't, you know, the evidence against it being written by Paul is not sufficient. It's, re- it's really pushing, uh, it's, it's very much trying to push a boulder up a hill. Like it's very difficult um, because it's become accepted. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true, but I think that you're starting to see some pushback against that. So you, there's been a couple of, I mean, if you read the, the more, you know, conservative, you know, in-depth commentaries that have been put out relatively recently. I mean, I think they're making strong arguments against that um, and sort of having a pushback there. But it is interesting for us in scholarship, I think, to your point, that we have to sort of defend um, claims like that, because in the broader world of, of New Testament scholarship, it's been considered for years to just be something that everybody knew was the case, right? Right. Yeah. And just, you know, Maybe I'll do another episode and get you on and we can talk about the specific arguments for and against um, for and against that, because I think that would be good. But just to get you guys oriented when we're talking about the pastorals, what they are and what are some of the general challenges um, that that kind of should give you at least wet your appetite and you can study further from there. Uh, so let me get back into the New Testament used to the Old Testament. Um, so just as an example how does First Timothy make use of Old Testament law, and how does that help us to better understand uh, the book, the book of First Timothy? Now, I say this, guys, because you, Dr. Ray, recently wrote, uh, did a presented a paper related to this topic um, at the Regional Evangelical Theological Society, and I, he and I was, he and I were talking about it, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Um, so if you could just kind of share specifically this idea of law, because if you start reading first Timothy, it comes up very early. Right. So if you start reading it in, in verse, by the time you get to verse seven, you're already, you know, encountered with this law issue in first Timothy, right? So first Timothy one, seven, uh, deals with these, uh, false teachers that Paul is telling Timothy to deal with in the church. Matter of fact, if you look at verse three, Paul says that he left Timothy in the city of Ephesus Ephesus, so that he might charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine, right, or to devote themselves to these myths and endless genealogies. So part of the purpose of 
First Timothy is to charge Timothy to deal with these what seem to be false teachers in the church. So when we get to verse 7, we find out that these false teachers desire to be teachers of the law. This is what Paul says. They desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So I, I somewhat jokingly say they want to be teachers of the law, but the only problem is they don't know anything about the law, right? right. They're ignorant in relation to the law. So in verse 8, Paul says to Timothy, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, right? Which is an interesting claim. We touched on some of this in the last episode where we're talking about how much do we really engage with the Old Testament today? Well, if people don't engage with the Old Testament today, a lot of times they really don't engage with the Old Testament law. So we go to now we're no longer under the law, which is certainly true for us as Christians, but it doesn't mean that the Old Testament law doesn't have any bearing. So I always find it interesting that Paul is writing post-resurrection, right? He's writing um, uh, post the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he's telling Timothy that the law is good if you use it in the right way. And so I think this issue of the Old Testament law forms a lot of the background um, of First Timothy. One of the other issues that we struggle with in the pastorals is we clearly see that Timothy and, and Titus as well are dealing with these false teachers. But one of the questions we have is, what exactly is this false teaching? Uh, we're, we're doing what we sometimes call mirror reading, right? Where we don't have what the false teachers were teaching. All we have is what Paul tells Timothy. But I think it's pretty clear from reading 1 Timothy, to me at least, that one of the main issues at stake in 1 Timothy is how to rightly understand, apply, and use the Old Testament law as Christians today. Yeah, so, yeah, that's really helpful. And to kind of like uh, zero in on that a little bit more, when he's using the Old Testament law, are there any like specific things? I think in your paper, you kind of, you tried to kind of draw certain points of, this gets back to what we talked about in the previous episode of some people would say, oh, that's an obvious reference to the Old Testament. And others would be like, oh, I don't see it. Right. Um, so there are there some things where you see, First Timothy using the Old Testament law, you're seeing some parallels there that maybe not be obvious. Yeah. So the topic of the paper specifically was about the next few verses after verse seven and eight in First Timothy chapter one. So Paul gives this whole list of, I was going to say a whole list of sins. That's not really true. It's technically a list of sinners. Um, he goes on to say, after this claim that the law is good if used lawfully, he says, with understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. And he gives this whole long list of, of uh, sins as described in the Old Testament, right? So the first part of the list is somewhat generic. It's the, the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane right? And there's a lot of scholarship on that, but my paper dealt mostly with the second part of the list where it seems pretty clearly that Paul is drawing on what we sometimes call the second table of the Ten Commandments, right? He's dealing with these um, Old Testament uh, laws related to how we interact with other people, right? The, the, the second table of the Ten Commandments. So Paul talks about those who strike their fathers and mothers, which is an interesting one for us as New Testament. Okay, what are we? What is this striking their fathers and mothers? What's going on there? Uh, he deals with the murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, all these different sorts of things. So the the argument that I put forward in that paper is is that in that part of the list in particular, 
that Paul is drawing, yes, on the second table of the Ten Commandments, that's actually pretty commonly accepted, I think. My argument is that Paul is drawing more specifically on uh, basically Old Testament sins that led to death, if we, if we can think of it that way. So the Old Testament has all of these really maybe for surprisingly for some Christians today, all these different sins in the Old Testament for which you were put to death. Um, and, and so I think that Paul is intentionally echoing these death penalty commands. So striking their fathers and mothers. So Paul is basically saying not just those who break the commandment to honor your father and mother, but specifically under the Old Testament law, those who struck their parents were subject to the death penalty under the Mosaic law. Uh, murderers, right? This actually goes back to Genesis 9 before the giving of the Mosaic law, but murder under the Mosaic law was a, was led to the death penalty. Um, uh, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality, a whole range of, of sexual sins under the Old Testament law led to death under the Mosaic law. Uh, enslavers, this is, uh, I think, one of the better arguments because Paul doesn't just say those who steal at this point, because by and large, theft under the Old Testament law was not a capital uh, under capital sin. It was not a sin that led to death. Uh, but man stealing, if we can say it that way, and you know, stealing someone to enslave them actually did lead to death under the Mosaic law. And so Paul doesn't just say for those who steal, but for the really the one specific case where theft was uh, a, a capital sin. And then he even refers to liars and perjurers, which, again, was not normally um, a capital case under the Old Testament law, but only in very specific circumstances. So I think what Paul is doing here is basically trying to show us how to rightly use the Old Testament law. And one of the things that I think that I would say is Paul is showing us that the Old Testament law demonstrates that the wages of sin is death, if I can use Paul's language in other places, right? Or as Paul would say in Romans chapter one, that those who do these things deserve to die. Yeah. And I find that to be a really, uh, really interesting argument. Something I had not thought about until, um, until you brought it up. And I think, I feel like almost kind of what seals it for me in, in kind of bringing me on your side there is the fact that he is the, the, the slave traders, the man stealers, like specifically like that one, like he doesn't, he's not echoing just, Oh, those who steal. Mm -hmm. It's specifically that um, specifically the idea of someone who kidnaps someone else to sell them into slavery. And that kind of parallel with the old Testament um, yeah, I think that's a really helpful, uh, like why that and not some of the others. Right. Um, yeah, so that's really helpful. I guess my question now, and I have no idea and I haven't really prepped you for this cause this is just a, just a, um, something that just came to my mind. Are there any sins that lead to death that he doesn't parallel? So are there any sins that in the Old Testament have the death penalty that he does not either directly reference or in some way kind of like generalize? Uh, yeah, you're, you're testing my memory a little bit here, but that's okay. I think the one that comes to my mind most immediately, well, there's a couple actually. 
Um, one that comes to my mind most immediately is there is a, a an issue of a capital case for um, failure to listen to the priest under the Old Testament law. So that's that's one that I think that would be put under that category. Uh, interestingly enough, like you could look at violations of the Sabbath law, for example. So one of the issues in, for, in this passage of part of 1 Timothy is there's the question of, I'm making the argument based on the second table of the Ten Commandments. Well, obviously, there's lots of Old Testament capital sins under the first table of the Ten Commandments, right? So you have false prophets, uh, for example, or those who worship other gods or uh, those who violate the Sabbath, for example. Uh, so I think for whatever reason, Paul is definitely focusing in on those that relate to the second table of the Ten Commandments here, presumably at least because this is the issue that's um, going on in Ephesus in particular, right? So there are some, certainly a lot of those would fit under, uh, I would argue, violations of the first table. Okay. Yeah, no, that's really that's really helpful. And uh yeah, and the reason that comes to mind is I'm thinking, well, that's probably the obvious counterpoint. Mm-hmm. And then just thinking through that and saying, all right, well, if he did leave certain ones out, why? Mm-hmm. Like, if it's related to the priest or if it's related to Sabbath, like, is there a point in that? Yeah. Um, so that's just, that's why I asked that question. Yeah. And I'm not asking you to necessarily respond if you don't want to. Well, so I think just briefly, I would say, I think that, again, first of all, it's hard in a sense to determine exactly what's going on with these false teachers. But if you look at the issues that are dealt with, you deal with like, in, in First Timothy chapter four, it deals with marriage, for example, and, for, and we'll talk about some more of these specific examples later, I assume. But First Timothy five, it deals with care for widows, um, how you treat the elders of the church, different things like that. So it seems that part of the issue going on in First Timothy is not as much uh, quote unquote, the worship of false gods, right? Um, maybe in a way that we would be dealing with in some other books of the New Testament, but it seems to be dealing with these second table kinds of issues, right? How we treat other people, uh, sorts of things like that. So I think that would be part of the argument that I would make there. Okay. Yeah. So with these last, uh, with this kind of, here's my last question. Well, my last question that's written down that you know about, um, And it's kind of as we're as we're closing it out a little bit here, um, I went to one to just the law, but there's several. I mean, a lot more than several, a lot of references in the pastorals in general. So first Timothy, second Timothy, Titus. So what are some other examples of where the Old Testament can provide insight into the pastoral epistles? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, just to stay with First Timothy, just because I, I guess we're there. Um, so I think in First Timothy five, there's really two examples of how Paul is really um, building his argument based on the Old Testament law. Probably the first one is the easiest one, where he deals with bringing an accusation um, against an elder. Uh, well, really, there's two issues there. One, the honoring of elders, and then the bringing of an accusation against the elder. In honoring the elder, he says, for the scripture says, you must not muzzle an ox while it's threshing out the grain, right? And so this interesting way, Paul yeah. argues for, I would I would say, the payment of church leaders, those who devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer, uh, for the church financially supporting them on this Old Testament law from Deuteronomy about not muzzling an ox while it threshes out the grain. The implication seems to be there that he's drawing a principle from the Old Testament law sort of a if this uh, lesser case than even more in this greater case, right, where 
Um, if an ox is, is supposed to eat some of the fruit of its labor, if I can say it that way, so that you don't muzzle it while it's threshing and you're allowed to eat some of the, 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 the fruit of its labor, right? In the same way, an elder or a pastor who's devoting themselves to the word ought to receive some of the fruits of their labor, right? Support from the church. Uh, but you see it in the next part about an accusation against an elder or witness. Uh, Paul says not to receive it except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Well, that's clearly drawn from the Old Testament law, right? In capital cases, uh, you had to have two or three witnesses in order to support um, someone being put to death for a sin a capital sin under the Old Testament law. Uh, but I think even in the earlier part of 1 Timothy 5, where Paul is dealing with uh, the care of widows, there's this interesting claim in 1 Timothy 5, 8. Paul says, but if someone does not provide for his own relatives, and especially the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a strong claim, right? Yeah. To, to, to not care for your family uh, makes you worse than an unbeliever um, in the context of supporting widows. And I think what Paul is doing there, we go back to that striking your father and mother, that even uh, just a, a flagrant disregard for your parents under the Old Testament law was actually a capital sin under the Old Testament law. So violations of this commandment to honor your father and mother, um, if you won't do that as a Christian, <laughs> You're showing yourself, even unbelievers seem to know how to care for their family, right? And so I think that there's this Old Testament law background there uh, where children, uh, one of the ways people sometimes mock the Old Testament law is to say, oh, well, a three-year-old who talks back to their parents is supposed to be put to death under the Old Testament law. No, this was actually talking about adult, uh, adult mm -hmm. children oftentimes, right? I, I give the example here when I teach on this that in one of the capital cases, it says if the, if the child is a, is a, glunk, a, a drunkard and a glutton, right. uh, they're to be put to death. And I always say, you know, if a five-year-old's a drunkard, that's the parent's fault, right? right. If a 20-year-old's a drunkard, it's the, it's, the, it's the children's fault, right? And so anyway, I think in 1 Timothy 5, we just see how in, in so many different ways, you have to understand the Old Testament law uh, to get the full impact of what Paul's saying in his teaching to the church. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's so many, like, as you're going, I'm thinking, uh, even earlier on, um, which I'm not going to get into some of the more controversial passages where he's bringing in Genesis and bringing in other things. I'm not going to get into y'all read Timothy yeah. and you'll know what I'm talking about pretty quick. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, he uses it and weaves it throughout, um, first Timothy and, uh, yeah, real quick. Um, are there any other are there any other things like I don't know if you've got got an honorable mention for Second Timothy or Titus? Um, you don't have to. That's fine because uh, I told you we we're going to be done here, and I'm at about three minutes before we're we're, we're done. So if you have any of honorable mentions in Second Timothy or Titus that come to mind, then speak now. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I don't know off the top of my head. I do think, and I think there's sin list in all of these books. I think that's one particular place that understanding the Old Testament law is particularly helpful for us. And you, you find these really all throughout Paul's letters, but you find some of them in um, and, you know, Titus refers to insubordination, basically, right? They're insubordinate. Um, so I think there's some possible uh, Old Testament echoes there. I think that really, I think the point that I'm making here broadly is that for us defining sin, and I think this is a particularly important topic for us 
in our day and age, the defining sin, the Old Testament law is particularly helpful there. So when Paul lists these kinds of sins, I think he's often alluding back to uh, sort of Old Testament concepts, maybe even in Titus with this concept of insubordination. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think this is, again, gets to the point we did in the previous episode, uh, we made in the previous episode, which was the Old Testament is important. <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we don't just throw it out yeah. Um, yeah. because he's he's appealing to the Old Testament as an authority. Yeah. I'm thinking of just other, just skimming through, thinking back through things, but Paul being poured out as a drink offering, right? He talks yeah. about that in, in Second Timothy. And, and I mean, that's another good example of, of just a, a, a passing illusion, right? That, that he, right. he really doesn't, doesn't bother to explain. Um, but the assumption is um, there, there's a, a call back to some, some Old Testament concepts there, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a, that's a fantastic example. That's, that's, I didn't think about that until you said it. And I'm like, oh yeah, well, there you go. That's, that's a perfect example of he's referencing the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system mm-hmm. and offering system. Yeah. So that's great. So we're going to go ahead and, and end it there. Um, I thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, so we'll go ahead and uh, end right there. Thank you for listening to the New Testament Setting Podcast. I encourage you to share this with friends, to leave a review, and also to purchase my book, Facing the Mob, Rome, the Crowd, and the New Testament. It really helps the channel out.